1998, uh, my friend Evan, Aaron, and my brother Greg, we went to see the movies. Uh, we went to the movies to see the greatest movie of all time when I was 13 called uh, Waterboy. Have you guys seen the movie Waterboy? Uh, loved that movie, playing football and just, just loving everything about it. So we, we went to the movies. Um, you know you, the, the 24-hour fitness on, was it Rancho Cal? Right there, that used to be the Edwards. How many of you guys are familiar with that? How many of you guys actually went to the movies when that was in Edwards? So that was Edwards Cinema, and I, and I went there. I've been in the Valley since 1990. And, uh, and so we went to the movies there. And after the movie, we were waiting to, to, for our mom to pick us up, or my friend's mom to pick us up. And we, we, there was a candy store next door, and we really wanted some candy. And so we, were, we spent all of our money at the movies, so we had nothing left. And we were looking around for coins, anything, right? And so there was these two kids sitting um, just, just off to the side, and they knew that we were looking at or what we were looking for. And so they, they threw out um, a nickel, what I thought was a quarter. And I have a quarter now because someone after last service came up and gave me a quarter. Um, so anyways, he, he throws a nickel out, and I was like really excited. Fat kid, candy, I'm all over it, right? And so I run over. And it's a nickel, and I'm super bummed. You still couldn't get anything for a nickel then. I'm not like some of you guys that would buy a house. But um, anyways, I, uh, my papa's gone, so I can say that. Um, I, I went to pick it up, and the kid laughs at me. And so I'm being Mr. Tough Guy, and so I'm like, I'm going to fight him, right? It's just two of these guys versus me, my brother, and my two friends. And so I go over there, I'm like being Mr. Tough Guy and stuff. And they're like, oh, we're just messing around. And so I'm like, yeah, that's right, you know, got you. And... Um, so then we're still waiting for Mrs. Doverspike to come and, and pick us up. And, uh, and all of a sudden, like six vans pull up and all of these two kids' friends pile out of the van to go to the movies. See, they were just getting ready to go into the movies while we were just getting ready to go out. And so there was this awkward transition where there was like, seemed like 300 Spartans against me and my, my brother and my two friends. And so me not, not being as prideful as I am and not wanting to back down from anything. I'm like, all right, we're getting beat up. Let's do this. And I turn around and I kid you not, uh, my two friends, my brother luckily had my back, but my two friends were nowhere to be found. They were actually in the Rubio's parking lot, which is just across the way. Have you guys familiar? I mean, that's, they ran and they ran quick because I literally turned around like a half a second later and they were already behind cars, like looking through the back window. Um, and I had, I had a lot of courage and I was courageous when I, had, when I felt like I had someone had my back. When uh, I felt like the numbers were in my favor and things were going my way, I was, I was courageous and I wasn't scared of, of the fight. But as soon as it was just me and my brother and a bunch of other guys, my, my courage um, quickly shifted to doubt and uncertainty and no, no offense, ladies, but scared like a little girl as the expression goes. And uh, so today I want to talk to you guys about a guy named John the Baptist. And I believe that the, the story of John the Baptist is, is similar to this, my story. And when things are going great, you have great courage in the faith. But when things don't go your way, you, doubts tend to creep in and uncertainty rises in your life. And so uh, today I want to address that and talk about um, just doubt. How many of you guys have ever struggled with doubt? And those of you who haven't raised your hands are just doubting the fact that you can get your hands up that fast enough. 
Uh, I think we all, we all deal with doubt, whether it's large, small, some, some way or another, we deal with doubt. And uh, John the Baptist was no different. Uh, John the Baptist, what we know about him, he was a Nazarite, uh, meaning he was set apart for the Lord. He didn't drink any wine. He didn't touch any dead animals. Uh, he didn't cut his hair. Uh, Samson was also a Nazarite. And so this guy was just set apart to the Lord from his birth. We know that uh, his mother Mary, or uh, his mother Elizabeth and Jesus' mother Mary were sisters, making Jesus and John cousins. There was an incident in, in Luke, the gospel of Luke, where the moms were getting together, Mary and Elizabeth, they were like hanging out, being pregnant together. And then like John the Baptist like leapt in his womb. Like, I don't know what that's all about, but it was pretty exciting. Uh, needless to say, they had a good relationship growing up. You remember the story in, in John 3, where John baptizes Jesus the heavens opened, like the dove ascended, and he said, heard God's voice saying, hey, look, this is my son, hear him. This is, this is the guy, this is the Messiah. John the Baptist himself saying on the shore of the Jordan River saying, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you're thinking, um, if anyone is going to not doubt, it's surely John the Baptist. I mean, he stood up for righteousness. The the gospel of, of Matthew describes him as like this hairy, got a leather belt, the whole bit, like hair going everywhere. You know who comes to mind when I think of this is um, Robin Williams in Jumanji when he comes back. Um, there, right there. That's John the Baptist. That's who I picture. You guys are welcome. So now every time you hear John the Baptist, you're going to think of Robin Williams in Jumanji. But this is the John the Baptist that the Bible describes, this guy who has courage, had courage in the faith. He called the Sadducees and the Pharisees out on their, um, their hypocrisy. He called them a brood of vipers, meaning you know, you're, you're teaching are as, are as deadly as vipers' venom. I mean, the guy was just unwavering for most of his life. But we see he gets himself in a little bit of trouble. Um, in, the, in, the, in the region there of Jerusalem, um, the Romans had come in and occupied the land. And this guy named King Herod was overseeing that. And so King Herod went to a party at his brother's house and saw his brother's wife, his sister-in-law, and says, you know, now you're my wife. And John the Baptist was like, hey, that's wrong. You're in sin. And Herod said, you're in jail. And so we pick up here in Matthew chapter 11, Herod uh, had thrown uh, John in jail. And this is where we pick up the story here in verse one of Matthew 11. It says, and it came to pass when Jesus, or when his disciples, excuse me, when it came to pass, Jesus finished commanding his disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and he said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to him, go and tell John the things which you hear and see that the blind see that the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So John the Baptist is in prison um, for standing up for righteousness, calling sin what it is, sin. And, uh, and we see he, he begins to doubt here. So the question that I, that I want to address today um, is as believers, as Christians, um, is it okay to doubt? Is doubting God a sin? Uh, this is a question that uh, many of us have maybe wondered or maybe have passed judgment upon someone, a friend, a family member, something who has doubted or is against, you know, saying that if you doubt, it's sin. You know, there's this... Um, 
kind of the elephant in the room of Christianity, one of them would be, is doubting God sin? And so, you mind you, this is after John the Baptist, he starts doubting and questioning God's um, sovereignty and his deity. This is after the baptism. This is after he says, I must decrease, that Jesus must increase. I mean, this is after the womb leap. This is after all of these things. And yet he's still, his mind is still um, filled with doubts and uncertainty. And I would say, maybe there's some of us in here today that are like John the Baptist and have doubts. Maybe you're not, maybe you are doubting his deity. Maybe you're like, well, you know, if God is truly God, then such and such wouldn't have happened. Or maybe some of your doubts are, um, can God really work in my life? Maybe some of you even right now are sick and you're wondering, you've been praying night after night, day after day, and yet your, your prayers haven't been answered. Therefore, you're beginning to doubt God's goodness. Is Jesus really able to heal me? Or if God cared, then I really wouldn't be in this situation. So the question still remains, you know, is it okay to doubt? I would say that, you're like, answer the question already. Well, before I do, wait, there's more. Um, I would say that you're in good company if you doubt. You look to the Psalms. Have you guys have ridden through the, read through the Psalms before? Where you're like, man, it's like super encouraging or really depressing. There's like no middle ground there, right? Well, in half of the 150 Psalms, so roughly 75 Psalms, um, there seems to be some sort of, something goes wrong between Israel and their faith in God. Some sort of barrier. They're either pushing God away or God is saying, you know what, this is what you want, then fine. But there's some sort of faith crisis going on. And I, I turn to Psalm chapter 88. I actually have it up on the screen. Uh, but Psalm chapter 88 says this, says, Oh Lord, I cry out to you. I keep on pleading day by day. Oh Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you turn your face from me? I have been sick and close to death since my youth. I stand helpless and desperate before your terrors. Your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have paralyzed me. They swirl around me like floodwaters all day long. They have engulfed me completely. You have taken away my companions and loved ones. Darkness is my closest friend. I'd venture to say that he's got some serious doubts of God. If God even hears him, if God even is, is can, if, if God understands what he's going through. You know, sometimes we think that God doesn't get us because he was God and he lived on this earth and he was, he's just God. So he just, just God, it's unfair. But the book of Hebrews tells us that, that we have a high priest that can sympathize with us because he went through the things that we went through. He experienced loss. John the Baptist, spoiler, he gets, his head, he gets beheaded. Um, that was one of John, or Jesus' closest friends, Lazarus. I mean, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I mean, he experienced loss. Think of all of his friends, his closest friends, what happened when things got hairy. They bailed on him. Jesus understands. And so if I could sum up Psalm 88, I would sum it up this way. God, I've been praying I've been praying, I've been praying, and yet I, I, don't, I have no response from you. You know, I, I've, I've done all these things. I feel like I might as well just die. My, my life is, is, is consumed with grief, and it's like you don't even care. 
you can't even hear me. Do you care? And so I would say that the psalmist here in chapter 88 very much is dealing with some doubt. A few other people come to mind, um, Sarah and Abraham. Remember back in Genesis when God promised Abraham, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you descendants, I'm gonna give you a, an heir to your, um, you know, basically I'm gonna make your descendants as, as many as the, the sand of the seashores or the stars in the heaven and they're getting old in age and, and they're, they're, they're still barren. And what do, what do um, Abraham and Sarah do? They laughed, right? They laughed at God. Now I would say that's, that's doubt. Would you agree with me? They're doubting what God is able not necessarily that, that God is God, but God is able to do these things. Another one is Gideon. One of my favorite stories because it, it portrays Gideon as like, like a chump. But yeah, God takes this little scared cat that's hiding in a ditch and, and, like, and uses him just in mighty ways. So at this time in the, the judges, right? Gideon's one of the last judges and um, these raiders are coming in to pillage uh, Israel. And, and so God meets uh, Gideon. He's hiding at the threshing floor. He kind of meets him, the angel of God, and says, hey, you mighty man of valor, I'm gonna use you. And he's like, who, me? He's looking around like, are you sure you got the right person? But Gideon doubted that God could use him to um, over, overthrow Israel's enemies and bring Israel back to um, what, what they once were. And so like all three of these different situations, um, God wanted to do big things in their life. But at first it was stopped, it was halted because of their doubt. But the cool thing about Sarah, Abraham, and Gideon is their doubt turned into great courage and great faith. You look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, it's considered the hall of faith. And Gideon, Sarah, and Abraham are all mentioned in there. And I don't think they're mentioned in there um, because, or God didn't pass them over because they had doubts. God didn't pass them over because They struggled with their faith. But God put them in there because eventually they they placed their their faith in Jesus. Like the disciples said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I think a lot of our doubts that we have come from a a place of belief and yet not full belief in, in what God can do in our lives. So as we look at the passage here in John chapter, or Matthew chapter 11, um, there's a few things, there's three things that I see that, that John, um, what, what caused John's doubt. And the first one is, is difficult situation. John, as you remember, he's in prison because he, he called uh, King Herod out on his sin. Now, I, I've never been to prison um, yet. Um, I have two daughters that one day will be dating, and so never know. But uh, I, I haven't been to prison yet, and uh, I don't ever plan to go there. But uh, when I was 12, I went to uh, San Francisco, and we went and did the Alcatraz tour, and they put me in solitary confinement. And I started crying like, uh, no offense again, but started crying like a little girl when I went in there because it was scary, and it's dark, and it's lonely, and it's cold. And I imagine John sitting in this prison cell, having plenty of time to think about what he did, and like, well, did he, what he did, was it wrong? No, in fact, it was the right thing to do. And how does God repay him, right? This is, these, these are our human emotions that we think. You know, look, I, I stand up for righteousness and yet, you know, God's repaying me by throwing me in jail. I mean, John knew, John knew that he was going to jail for this. And yet the difficult situation caused him to start to doubt a little bit. You know, I think sometimes we, um, 
the better our situation is, the more, you know, we, we can easily say, oh, well, you know, God's provided for me this, this, and this way, so I must be more loved. Or things aren't provided the way I want, so he must not love me as much. You know, this is the natural response that we have, natural thinking that we have uh, when it comes to God, because we have this finite picture of who God is. We keep God in, a, in our own little uh, special jewelry box, if you will. And, uh, you know, we, we like God to fit in our little mold and in, in our little image and our shape. And anytime he gets outside of that, we're like, whoa, I, I didn't sign up for this. So we see John's in prison. It's got a difficult situation in front of him. So doubt begins to creep in and he asks his disciples, hey, I want you to go ask Jesus if he's really the one or if we should look for someone else. Now, the second thing that we see here is that John had unmet expectations. John thought that Jesus surely would free him and Israel from the Roman rule. So at that time, remember, Rome had come in and taken over Jerusalem and Israel. And, and so they thought the Messiah, the very one that John was like, there he is, he's here. They thought that Jesus, he was gonna come and set up this earthly kingdom, kick out Rome and all the, all the bad guys, right? And he was just gonna like rule and reign. And things didn't exactly work out. I mean, Jesus actually rebuked Peter because he's like, hey, you're not gonna do that. And he's like, hey, get behind me, Satan. Because everyone had these expectations of what Jesus was gonna do in their lives. And yet when, it weren't, when they weren't met, they got bummed. They didn't know where to turn. They got upset. You know, John stood for righteousness and yet here he is sitting in a prison cell. You know, are expectations of God too high? And I would say, no, they're just too narrow. That God can do amazing things in our lives, but we, we try to squeeze him in this way. Like he's got to fit within our parameters. When God's like, I invented parameters. You didn't even know what that word is until I invented it. You know, here we are trying to tell God, like putting up the bumper lanes when, they, when he's bowling. You know, God's going to get a turkey on you. Um, and then the last thing we see here, the third thing that, that I see is that he had limited perception to what, what was really going on. Um, John sitting in a prison cell thinking, how in the world could this turn out good? You know, I do everything that's asked of me. I'm a prophet. You know, I'm like the greatest prophet the world's ever seen. And yet I, I do what I'm asked. I stand up for righteousness. I call someone out. And yet I'm sitting here in prison. John had no idea that 2,000 years later, we would be talking about his very story right here. And I think how many times is that, does God do that kind of thing in our life? When we think that we know how the end of the story is gonna, gonna play out, but really we have no idea. My wife was making dinner um, couple weeks ago. And um, I can't remember what it was, but it smelled delicious. And my son, he is, okay, so we're, my wife and I are thankful that we had him last because, um, there he is. He's one of those kids that we had first, we've been done having kids, you know? <laughs> He's cute, but don't let that fool you. He is a punk, right? Um, 
so my wife's cooking dinner and we keep our fruit snacks. Uh, we keep like, the, like it's Dory right now because Finding Dory's coming out. So he knows what the box looks like and he just, he, they were on top of the fridge. And so Sarah's cooking dinner and he wants a fruit snack. And so he's pointing and doing like this, you know, and I'm like, Judah, mom, mom's cooking dinner, you know, and he's like, I don't care. I want fruit snacks. I can see them. Uh, dinner may smell good, but the fruit snacks look good. You know, and so, and I'm trying to explain to him, you can explain to a two-year-old, you can't. Here's the, here's the interesting thing about my son. I know every dad says this, and so you're going to take it with a grain of salt, and I get that, but this is truth, okay? So, hashtag truth. Um, my son is super coordinated, but he can't speak to save his life. If it, like, his life depended on him saying five words, he could not do it. But he could literally throw a spiral at two years old, like, seven yards. Like it's insane. So I'm hoping, like people tell me it's going to get better. I hope it does. I hope one day he's actually able to talk. But as of now, he just whines and cries and points. And um, so he, I was like, son, dinner, you don't, you don't want the fruit snacks. Trust me. I know you want them, but dinner's coming. It's going to satisfy you. The fruit snacks, they're not going to, it's no nutrition in that. And it was in that moment, I had this like dad moment yet God totally spoke to me and said, that little brat that's crying and whining is you, Kyle. You think you know what you want. You think that those fruit snacks are gonna satisfy, but they're not. What I have for you is I've got dinner for you. And I just had this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, you know, it was like a light bulb went on. And, you know, we have a limited um, perception to what we really need in life. And we think that we need this or we need to get out of this situation. And yet God has a plan in all of it. And it doesn't mean the plan's going to work out and, um, to your favor and it's going to be everything that you thought it was going to be. I mean, John the Baptist surely didn't think he was going to die in a prison cell being beheaded. That wasn't when he started. He's like, yeah, I'm going to stand up for righteousness and get beheaded today. That was not his thought. But God doesn't care about how our situations work out. He cares about our obedience and moving us towards glory. That's what his end game is. His end game isn't comfortable, us being comfortable here on this earth. You look at the disciples and the prophets, they were all chased out, beheaded, killed, right? But yet they're the greatest influence the world has ever known. So you have difficult situations, unmet expectations, and limited perception is a recipe for doubt for sure. I think John asked this question. He says, you know, are you really the one? Are you the one that I've been prophesying about? Are you, are you, are you really able to do all the things that, that the Old Testament says you're going to do? Because the Old Testament says that, that you're going to rule and reign, and here I, I don't see you doing that. Are you really able to do all that that I, that I want? And I think John asked the question that every single one of us in this room needs to ask. Jesus, are you the one or should we look for someone else? I think that's a scary question to ask because we think we're challenging God, but yet God encourages us, taste and see that I'm good. You have questions, you have doubts, bring them to me, the one who's got the answers. And sometimes we get scared because we think that doubting is, uh, is the unpardonable sin, if you will. But look, notice the way Jesus responds to John's doubt in verse four, back to Matthew 11. It says, and Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. 
The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. If I was Jesus, this is probably not how I would have responded. But how does Jesus respond? He responds by taking John to scripture. This passage here alludes to Isaiah chapter 35, verses four through six, an Old Testament prophecy that, that John would have been very, very familiar with. The, the scripture will be up on the screen in Isaiah 35. It says this, say to those who are fearful hearted, and we're gonna come back to that because that's the key that really drives these, these uh, three areas of, of our doubt. It says, uh, say to these who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So Jesus responds by taking John to scripture. I think sometimes... um, when, when we doubt, um, I would say every time we doubt, what's behind it is fear. Fear that God's not in control. Fear that God doesn't know what he's doing. Fear that if I truly obey him by calling sin what it is, sin, then I'll get some sort of repercussion or some sort of discipline. So I, I shouldn't do that. But fear is what drives us. You know, the number one repeated command in the entire Bible, which is over 150 times is do not fear. Crazy, right? So why do you think it's in there 150 times? I teach to junior high and high school students and they normally talk back. So it's okay to talk back. That was a question. Um, why do you think it's in there 150 times? Because we're dumb sheep, right? I heard that. Uh, because we fear, right? I wasn't looking for some like, magical answer. It was just because we're scaredy cats a lot, aren't we? Fear is what drives us. Fear will drive us to do some really crazy things. Fear will drive us to do things that we never thought we'd ever do. It, it'll cause us to, uh, to not go places that that we should. Um, we were in Panama last, uh, last year and we went to like the last day of the trip. It was just uh, like, a, like a fun, relaxing day. We had to drive like three hours into the city. And so from there, we just had a relaxing day before we took off the next day. We went to the San Blas Islands um, just to, for a fun day. And it was like, like a movie, right? Just white sand, like blue, greenish water. You could see like your hand down there. There was a shipwreck that like, I don't know how many years ago, but it had like coral growing on it now. So there was a bunch of like fish swimming around. And so we went, but there was one person in the group, an adult, it wasn't a kid that didn't want to go snorkeling. I'm like, how often are you going to be here in this moment? Like, and you're not going to do it. But what caused her not to do it was fear. It was fear of the unknown. I guess there could be a giant squid or a shark or something, I guess. Right. But Sometimes we, we are afraid of things that possibly could happen and yet they never materialize. And so we let our fear catch up with us and we miss out on the blessing of the snorkeling trip or whatever. And so John, his fear is causing him um, to, to begin to doubt God. And you know, 
First Timothy or Second Timothy one seven says, "For God has not given us a spirit of fear, uh, but of power and of love and of sound mind." And um, you know, when when we're fearful, we got to remember that that that's not from the Lord; that's from the enemy. And it's easier said than done. I understand. I get it. We got we to recognize that well, the, we don't battle against flesh and blood. You know, that it's a spiritual battle out there. And the enemy wants to get us, uh, wants, wants to make us fearful so that we forget who God is. You know, and, and so as John doubts, you know, some of us, there, there, or there's a few ways that we can respond to doubt. One is we have these quiet lives of, of depression, um, not wanting anyone to know because we're ashamed to speak up about our, our doubts or our fears. Others will, will simply walk away from our faith and then others will um, get angry um, at God and turn against God and use that anger uh, against him. You know, and I've seen all three play out. But we get this way because we, we think somehow God owes us something. But God doesn't owe us anything. What we've earned on our own is, is death. Now, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So as Christians, the question remains, is it okay to doubt? You know, and I would, I would say this, that there's a benefit to doubt. Sometimes we think of our faith as like a castle or like a fortress. We've got our moat, you know, and we build it just the way we want. And um, it's safe, it's comfortable, it's familiar. You know, we keep things in, you know, keep, keep the bad guys out and keep the good guys in. Um, but what if God doesn't want us to be comfortable and safe? What if comfortable and safe actually keep God at a distance? You know, doubt breaks down the fortress walls and, and causes us to move outside and onto a journey with God. That's what doubt does. And I don't think that's a bad thing because we put God in this certain box and we think that God has to operate within this box. And if he doesn't, then we're upset with him. But doubting God definitely is painful and it's definitely scary. But um, it's, it's scary and it's painful because we think we're leaving God behind. But in fact, all we're doing is leaving behind the finite, the small, the God that agrees with us, the God that votes our, like our political party with us, the God that, that does everything the way we like. We're leaving behind that God and that's Okay. We're leaving behind the small God, the God that we can control. But doubt forces us to evaluate who we think God is. And I would say, don't run from our doubts. Don't run from our fears, but rather face them head on, patiently, courageously, walking through them with Jesus. And I think if we have the guts to honestly face Jesus with our fears and with our doubts, he'll answer them. Look, John the Baptist, he had doubts, he had fears, and what did he do? He brought them to the source. And Jesus addressed them and he brought them back to scripture. Doubt can do things in our lives that, um, that nothing else can do. Doubt will, will cause things to happen in our lives spiritually that, that nothing else, no other book, um, not reading enough, not, not, not praying enough, Sometimes we need that experiential experience. Is that even a word? I don't know. But uh, we have to go through it, through I understand it. You know, and I think, um, so 
my cousin, I'm going to share a story with you guys about my, my cousin and just kind of where God brought me through my doubts and like my whys and, and all these things that I, I personally struggled with. And um, so my cousin, Allie, um, that's actually my cousin's daughter. So my cousin, Sherry and I, we grew up together and we were close and everything. We had sleepovers, the whole bit. Uh, my mom and, and her mom are, are sisters. And um, so she had her, her second daughter named Allison and uh, little Allie, and she was born in uh, October 9th, 2001. And she, my cousin Sherry had an older daughter that was I think, two at the time, uh, Emily. And so when she had Allie, she, my mom helped out a lot. You know, Allie would come over to the house and spend hours. We'd babysit her. You know, she's a little tiny, like two weeks old even, you know. And we'd spend all this time with her. And so it was like the first baby I ever held was Allie. And uh, like in real life, you know, I'm like, oh, this is what a real life baby looks like. Um, and so we just had this cool relationship growing up. And uh, we noticed that, you know, we talked to her and she'd smile and stuff and be all alert, but she would look at you. So we began to wonder, you know, maybe she's blind, but we're like thinking, we're not doctors. What do we know? And just as months go on, we, we, it's getting worse and worse. And so uh, Sherry takes Allie in and they're like, yeah, they ran a bunch of tests and it comes out that she's actually legally blind. She was born this way, apparently. They must've missed it on the tests or whatever. And so she's legally blind. And, um, and so we're like, ah, what a bummer, you know? So we keep praying for her, but at the end of the day, she's blind. It's no big deal. We'll love on her. She's Allie. She's awesome. So we're watching her one day and my brother and I are gone. I don't know where we're at, but uh, my mom is holding her and she walks into the living room and all of a sudden like the Bible channel, like big hair, suits, preachers, sweating, you know, um, is going on. And, um, uh, and this pastor comes on and says, you know, there's going to be some healings in the crowd tonight. And we're like, and my mom's like, okay, you know, here we go. And uh, so she's like, she's intrigued though. So she's sitting down watching it. Mind you, she doesn't watch this. It, I don't know if the TV turned on magically or by the Lord, whatever. But, um, and the guy's like, there's someone out there who has an eye problem. If, if you're standing next to them, put your hands on them and pray for Allie or pray for him. So my mom put her hands on Allie and prayed for her. And nothing happened, no scales, no doves ascended, no heavens opened. Um, life went back to normal. And so we kept on watching her and we noticed over the months, her eyes, she started responding. We take her to the doctors or her mom does, my cousin. And she's like, oh yeah, we must've messed up on your paperwork. She's fine. You know, there's no trace of her having any kind of eye problems at all. And, um, and so we're like, sweet, God answered prayers. So my cousin is very anti-God, very angry at God, does not believe in, in Jesus, believes in um, everything but Jesus. And, and so Sherry chalked it up as medical mistake. And we knew that God had healed her. So I knew from that point that God had something special for Allie's life. Um, so 12 years later, um, or 11 years later, Allison now is 11, and uh, September 2012, and Allie was diagnosed with cancer of the spine. It's cancer of the soft tissue. It basically eats away your muscles and allows your, your spine to pop through the skin, and, uh, which happened three times to her. And uh, she, Allie spent uh, 21 months in the hospital, in and out of the hospital. I think the longest she was home was for 10 days. Uh, she had 16 surgeries. Um, she was feeding through a tube only for... Um, there she is, uh, feeding through a tube for three months, paralyzed three times. Um, and all the while, we're, we're praying, we're diligently praying. How many of you guys remember the story and were praying with me? I know a lot of you guys were, were praying for, for my cousin and thank you. Um, but you know, God didn't answer the prayers the way that I would have liked and what I would have hoped. Um, 
This picture was actually taken two years ago yesterday, which is 11 days before she died. Um, I was praying for healing. I know you guys were praying for healing. Um, I was praying that God would, would use this to miraculously save my cousin Sherry, her husband Dustin, and their daughter Emily, and their son Nathan. Um, I was praying, praying, praying diligently. I'd never prayed so much before in my life, not before, not since. And yet God didn't answer my prayers the way that I had hoped and that I wanted. It didn't turn out the way that I wanted. And to be honest, I, I struggled with this for a while, you know, keeping a a poker face, as you know, guys do. Um, you know, I struggled because she didn't. She didn't know the Lord. She wasn't. She wasn't raised in a Christian home. Anything. She was raised in a home that was adamantly against Jesus and everything Jesus stood for. Her mom and dad want nothing to do with you, Lord. You know, she's. She didn't really get a chance to. To live her life. You know, and I, and I honestly, I, I struggled for a while. Like, why? How could this possibly work together for the good for those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose? How, God? If if you're, I believe in you, Jesus. Help my unbelief is really my prayer. And uh, God actually brought me to the conclusion. He spoke to me in a way that maybe I've never spoke to before. Um, but, but he said this, and this is, I've only said this a few times. Actually, I shared it last service. I shared it with my wife. Um, but, but I truly believe that, that God confirmed this, that it was by God's grace that Allie got cancer and went home to be with Jesus. And he confirmed that because she grew up, the home she would have grown up in would have been, there's no turning back from that. I mean, God can do anything, and I believe that. But she was being raised to be anti-Jesus. And I believe, I truly believe and someone actually after first service confirmed that the Lord had done the same thing in their life. But it was God's grace that she had this cancer and God took her home. That God was saved, or that, that God saved Allie from the turmoil of growing up with this anti-God position. You know, and, and, I, and it, it wasn't for months, I don't really know the time frame, but it wasn't right away that God brought me to this conclusion. I was struggling with it for a while because she didn't grow up the way my kids are going to be able to grow up. She didn't grow up like maybe many of you grew up in the church. You know, and you look at the, this picture. I was looking at pictures on Thursday preparing for the message, and, and you see the, the scripture, Psalms 36, verse 9, and just kind of glaringly stood out to me on Thursday, and I didn't know what it stood for. It's my shirt. I went to Bible college, and so it's a shirt that I had. And, and so Psalms 36, verse 9, I, I looked it up, and, and it says this, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. It was like the Lord just spoke to me and said, I got her in this moment on Thursday just confirming what he had already spoke to me years ago, that I got her, that she is in the light and that now she has life and life more abundantly. So God shouted my doubts because I brought them to him and I wasn't afraid of my doubts. And I stood in there and asked the questions and went to the source. So I'm gonna ask you guys, if you're doubting what God can do in your life, if you're doubting his existence, his deity, 
I challenge you to bring your doubts to him so he can shatter them. Bring, him, bring them to the only one who is able.